Welcome to A Better Way with Real Estate, a podcast series hosted by real estate investor, Brian O'Neill. During each episode, we'll give practical advice for individuals and families navigating the many hurdles in the home buying and selling process. There is a better way with real estate that supports the goals and needs of your family, and we're here to help. Listen along as we help families like yours, one home at a time. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another edition. Today, I'm really excited to talk with our guest. His name is Jay Bowman. And uh, Jay is the owner of Beyond Storage. He's in Kentucky. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a wife. He's got a couple of kids. We're going to talk about this really, really, really unique asset class of self-storage. And I'm really excited to have, have you on the show. Jay, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate it. Yeah, maybe if you could dive a little bit uh, deeper and, you know, for the listeners to understand how you got to this, uh, to this asset class of self-storage, you know, that you have a journey. There's a story here. Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, how you, how you got to this point and what you were doing before that. Cause like I said, there's a, there's a long history there. Sure. So uh, I've been an active real estate investor since 2006. Uh, I always focused on the, uh, the fix and flipses. That's uh, about that time. That's when all the shows came out and uh, everybody started watching. And, uh, you know, I thought uh, I, I'd always been uh, interested in purchasing uh, property to rent it out for passive income. I didn't even know that's what that was called when I, when I started doing this. But uh, so I bought, started buying rentals, started doing fix and flips and um, continued to do that through uh, 2020. Um, acquired. We have a. I have a small, small portfolio of single-family rentals, uh, some long-term. Uh, we have some short-term rentals or Airbnb properties, uh, and we also have some college rentals. Um, and then uh, in 2020, uh, I had met a, a friend of mine who. <laughs> who was very excited to tell me that he was selling everything that he owned to go full hog into self-storage. And I thought, what madness is this? <laughs> what, is, <laughs> what is this guy talking about? So uh, I, I uh, cornered him <laughs> in the room. And the more he talked, the more excited uh, I got about that opportunity. I then began to explore it, uh, just kind of dipping my toe in the water. And then... Um, I knew one guy here in town, a friend of mine, um, who was involved in storage, and he had bought one facility. Mm -hmm. And so I called him on a facility that I'd found, and he told me why it was a terrible idea to buy that facility. And then we started talking, and we realized that we had a very similar interest and brought different aspects to the table uh, to support a business. So as I like to tell people, we began our dating relationship with one facility in Missouri that we uh, personally purchased under our own names and realized that this could be a, a really successful venture. And from there, we created our company Beyond Storage. Awesome. And you've been doing that since 2020 now. So, uh, yeah. and, you, and you still have your other, you still have some of your other uh, assets, your rentals. Correct. Yeah. I haven't, uh, I, I've stopped fixing and flipping. I bought my last fix and flip probably in the summer of 2020 sold whatever was left uh, in 2021 after the, the rehabs were done and had already started to make my transition full-time into self-storage investing. 
you mentioned a conversation that you had with your with your friend who is now your partner, if I'm not mistaken. Is this the same gentleman? Uh, the original conversation was not. It was, it was okay. another investor. What did he tell you that <laughs> really got you excited? I'm curious to, to, to know. So I had already begun to feel the grind. If anybody does fix and flips, if anybody's involved in that, they realize the grind of construction. And just it it can really wear you down. Not only not only are you taking a risk on and purchasing the property and then financing the construction aspect of it, but you're dealing with and, and we can all attest to this in the last two years, uh, material shortages or the wrong material, or the guy shows up at the wrong time, or the guy doesn't show up at all. Um, you know, those those issues had already begun to creep into my business in greater amounts. Um, I would say late 2019 into 2020. Hmm. And I was just, I think the best way to say it was just emotionally worn down from it. Um, it was just not something that I was jumping up out of bed to do anymore. Um, I had begun to just be like, I, I was very hands off. And that's when you reach that point in anything in your life where you're just, you, you begrudge doing it. Uh, that's usually a signal that you need to take a step back and reevaluate what it is that you're doing or what you're participating in. It. And I had begun to realize those signs uh, concerning single family, but did not have a, uh, a direction that I was wanting to go in full time into a different asset class. It was only when I had spoken with uh, my friend uh, at this conference that he laid out the, the very basics of self storage that you hear a lot. One, there's no tenants, there's no toilets, there's no eviction. Um, it's essentially, it's a metal box with a fence and a keypad and everybody automates their payments. And while that's a very simplistic way of looking at a uh, self-storage investment, it's, it's not inaccurate either. Um, and so that, that's what really began to attract it to me. I'm not going out and building these facilities. We may put a building on a, an existing facility, but my current partner and I have, no desire to go by raw land and build a three-story class A facility, all climate controlled in Arizona somewhere. We're we're usually buying in tertiary markets with existing facilities um, that have either the current owners aren't operating them efficiently or they haven't raised rents in years or they're they're just not taking care of the facility at all. Um, and so it's it's a mixture of one of those three. And we identify those. You could say that those are fix and flips, I guess. Uh, you know, people, I think, mistake self-storage as a, it is a real estate class. But in reality, it is a business that happens to come with real estate. In the same way that when you buy a gas station, you don't say, I just bought real estate. You say, well, I bought this business and it just happens to come with this building and these pumps. And it's very much the same way. And so we treat it accordingly. It really, the value in self-storage is found in the operations of that business. I'm so glad I asked you that question. I mean, you absolutely nailed it. It is a business. It is a business and that's how you have to treat it. I, I would have, I got excited and I wrote it down when you said it's a metal box with a fence and everything's automated. And there's no, there's no, uh, you know, trash or tenants or, or evictions. So I can see how you would get excited about that. How I'm very curious, how do you find, I mean, I, I'm going to back up a second too, because 
seven years ago before I moved into this house, I utilized a storage facility because, and I have to imagine that a lot of people do this, right? A lot of people where I, I sold my house, I moved into this one and there was like a 45 day window where I had nowhere to live and all my stuff had to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that went into three storage units that I had just driven by this place multiple times over the, over the years, never gave it a thought. And now here I am uh, renting three storage facilities and bringing my stuff in and out. And I'm like, thank goodness that this thing exists. Right. And I, I, yeah. I know, and I saw a bunch of different stuff going on. Like people had cars in there and they workshops and using them for a bunch of different things. But it never occurred to me until much later is like, yeah, this is, this is a, a, a real thing, a real business. And, you know, they're popping up everywhere. You see them all over the place. So how do you, I mean, I, they're there, right? But how do you find them? Like, how do you, how do you find these facilities, as you said, where I guess the owners are a little distressed and, and you can go in and, and, and buy these things and, and, and you know, increase the, the bottom line, if you will? Sure. So if a majority, and, and, and don't make a mistake, if, you're, if you live in a large city, you see what's being built. You are keenly aware of these very large facilities that are going up to identify something that you might be able to afford as opposed to a $20 million facility that you could go find a 600 million, million, half dollar facility, you're going to exit those cities. What most people do is you can start off in areas that surround you. So um, a lot of investors will focus on something going a distance that they're comfortable in driving to. So while, you know, I don't, I haven't invested in any single family outside of my general area here in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, but if I just did that with storage, I would be extremely limited. You know, if I just said, well, I, I don't want to drive any further than an hour to get to my facility, there's, there is a very small number of those that I could afford and, and purchase. And so, I had to stretch my boundaries. So you have, first of all, you have to decide how far you're willing to go. You know, my partner and I, we purchase facilities between the Rockies and the Atlantic. That's, that's just where we're at right now. And so that, that's, that's where we go. We go where the deals go. If that's not your comfort level and you want to only go an hour or three hours on a drive, you want to pick those smaller areas. You want to identify those facilities, which are pretty easily done by doing a simple Google search. Uh, you can, a lot of them are, you can still find them in yellowpages.com. Um, there are online uh, advertising places like, um, oh my gosh, it escapes me. I'll come up with it later, but it specifically advertises um, storage facilities for mm-hmm. rent. And so as you, you get these phone numbers and you can contact these people. And it's just a basic conversation. You're just like, hey, my name is Jay. We were wanting to see if you thought about selling your facility. Because in reality, the storage was not common before really 1980. There were some facilities, but it wasn't huge. It wasn't until the 80s that you really saw it explode. So imagine being born in, let's say, 1960. All right. And you're you're really aggressive entrepreneur and you're you're 20 years old and you buy your first storage facility uh, in 1980. Well, today you are 62 years old and you still own this and you're still operating it. And while technology has made it 
easier to operate, a lot of these people have not adopted technology to make their lives easier. They are still writing out things on pieces of paper. They're still having people mail checks or drop checks off for rent for these facilities. And so you have a lot of these mom and pop storage owners who are tired and their children have seen them do this. And the children, when they go, well, wouldn't you like to have this? And the children go, no, I do not want that. That looks like a job and they don't want that job. And so what we bring to the table when we identify these facilities is we recognize I don't have to be there. This can be automated and it has to, the facility has to make it worth your while, but it, it has to be automated and it, and you can set processes in place to really simplify the operation of these facilities. And so you go into these smaller communities, you're going to run into these people and you can just have very basic conversations with them about their, uh, about their facility. And they love to talk about the facility. They've owned it for 40 years. They're very proud of what they own and they want to tell you all about it and why it's so amazing. So uh, you start having those biggest basic conversations with people and, uh, and they'll eventually come around with a price that they think that they'd like to let go of it for. And, and you can begin to work it out that way. Awesome. So a lot of these, a lot of these uh, owners are operating the facility at the same time. So, I mean, you could probably walk in or call and you're talking to potentially the owner right off the bat because they're, they're, they're working, they're working the business. Yeah. They're either, it's either the owner who's sitting in an office there mm-hmm. on site, or it's their buddy from down the road. Who's just looking for, you know, something to do during the week. Cause maybe he's retired and he's like, well, I don't mind doing this because the owner doesn't want to do it. They're paying him, you know, I don't know, 15 bucks an hour, 10 bucks an hour, or they're putting a manager in there on site with an apartment and, and paying an obscene amount of money to this individual to actually operate these, uh, these facilities. And it's just not, uh, it's not, it's not necessary any longer. What are, what are some of the things that you, well, let's maybe talk about this, the, the purchase side a little bit more. Um, you're clearly you're helping these sellers, uh, solve a problem. They're tired. They want to get out of the business. Uh, that seems like a nice niche for you. We, 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 we talk about, you know, you can do that in any niche in real estate really. Sure. Uh, and, and that's something that, that is a real thing. You know, you own this thing for 40 years, you, you, you don't want to be in it. And like you said, the kids don't want any part of it either. Right. So how do you acquire the properties? Do you, do you ever use seller financing? Do you primarily use banks? Is it, a, is, you know, to talk about the mix, the mix of, of, of funds that you use to, to acquire these deals. Yeah. Uh, so we have used on our, on the first facility uh, that we bought together, it was a seller finance deal. This awesome. individual was willing to uh, sell it uh, and we, I th- we had a, I want to say we bought it for 300, let's say 300,000. We put $60,000 down and he financed the rest of it at 9% interest. And while we paid that interest and we got the facility was, it was a dumpster fire contained inside of a dumpster fire. And so, uh, they said, Oh yeah, here's all, here's all your leases. Good luck to you. It was literally a trash can with uh, leases in it. <laughs> and we, you know, we figured that the facility might be 50% full. Uh, it was in terrible condition. 
and it ended up being more like 30% full. Um, and we had to move quickly to clean it up. Uh, the, we just had a lot of rust. There was a lot of distress. Uh, the paint was bad. There were weeds everywhere. There was junk everywhere. It looked like a junkyard that was masquerading itself as a small storage facility. So we cleaned that up and got it ready, fenced it, gated it, and made it really nice. And we began to have problems with the with the owner, and so we decided to pay him off in full to just remove him totally from the situation. Uh, since then, we don't we don't owe anything on that, but we've considered uh, leveraging that one up with uh, with debt to uh, maximize what we've got there. Uh, we bought another one. Um, it was an older couple in their early eighties. Mm-hmm. They were literally showing up at the facility to sign leases to accept rent to clean them out, to mow the grass. And I was just, I I couldn't believe it. It was like, there was a million different ways to do it, but um, that's what they were doing. And we bought uh, two facilities from them. Uh, The third one- uh, Did you buy those on, sorry to interrupt, did you buy those Um, on seller financing? No, we did not. That one we used bank financing for. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got really good terms on that, 20% down and a 25 year AM. Um, And then uh, there was another one in that town they knew that we had bought and we approached them. And at first they said no. And then they talked to their kids. And then we called them again and they said, well, we've changed our mind <laughs> because the kids just didn't want it. They were like, no, this looks like a hassle. Uh, and we used bank financing for that one as well. Uh, the one that we currently have um, under contract, the owner is willing to carry uh, a certain amount. Uh, he's going to carry a small, a small uh, amount of cash that we'll be using for uh, down payment with the bank as well. Um, on that one, we'll actually be completing a syndication. Um, I think that we're going to see, you're going to see that more and more out of real estate investors as things get more expensive and they enter into commercial asset classes. Um, we're doing a syndication uh, on that one, I believe. Okay, great. So talk a little bit more about the syndication piece. Maybe just give a, a, a general uh, you know, de- definition of, of what that is. Sure. Uh, Cause not everybody knows. And then, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you some follow-up questions to that. Sure. So I'll give you a hypothetical. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a facility. We put that facility under contract for $2 million and it needs, let's say $200,000 in rehab. It's got some concrete problems, some door problems. There's some issues that are large capital expenditures that we need to take care of. So all in, we're looking at this at $2.2 million. Well, you're talking about a bank coming to you and going, that's great. We need 20% down. We need $440,000. And we're like, ah, that's a lot of cash. Or we'd rather use that cash for something else. So what we do is uh, we will go and find investors who are interested in participating in a syndication where we will give them uh, what's called a preferred return and a small chunk of equity. And then they get a part of that deal. And knowing that uh, over a period of time, they will receive a certain return on their investment. And then uh, let's say in three years, we have bought the facility, fixed it up, stabilized it, and we can go back to another bank. And now that $2.2 million facility is now worth, let's say, $3.5 million. We can go do a cash out refinance. And our goal is to return all the investors cash plus the return of uh, 
and give them a, a cut of the equity out of the refinance as well. You can also sell that property. You'll see that at times where they just go ahead and exit and those, those investors get to get that return from the sale as well. Awesome. Very clear explanation. So on the $200,000, um, what are you typically doing to these facilities to improve them to get it up to that? I think you said 3.3. And I know you're doing some other stuff besides money, uh, money improvements. You're probably, you know, just talk about what you're doing to, to increase the, uh, the NOI. Sure. So um, we'll start with our first facility that we bought in Missouri. It mm-hmm. was, it was, it was, terrible um it the units that were there had not been painted in years they were faded it looked terrible uh we had some rusted roofs on uh some connex units those are the box units you'll see on the back of trucks they had doors on them um some roll-up doors uh they were just in really terrible disrepair so we took our funds we went and we had um these things uh, sealed on top and roofed. We had them completely repainted. Um, We went in and the gravel was more like dirt. (laughs) Um, And so we had to go in and bring in dump trucks after dump trucks, loads of gravel to put down to really add to really add an aesthetic appearance to this. And so people aren't driving through and and getting mud puddles and things like that. So we then fenced it and gated it and and cleaned it up and we did that. Um, The second one uh, that we had, one of the two facilities that we bought at that time came with some extra land. Mm -hmm. And so we said, all right, we're going to go in and bring some dirt into this and get its entitlement set up through the county and get permission to build an entire building, a, a much longer building of climate control on that land. And so we uh, we added value doing that. We had to uh, add some lights and some other things there. It came fenced and gated, but there was real value to that when we identified the land. Um, the other one came with land. Our fourth one came with land as well, and we are adding a building there. And so. Uh, on this other one, it just needed, it needs massive, it needs a lot of CapEx. You're going to see a lot of issues where doors aren't operating correctly. Um, you're going to find concrete. You're either going to have gravel and you need to turn it to concrete or the concrete's there is in poor condition. It's buckled. And so you're going to have to rip out concrete, pour concrete. Maybe you have a drainage issue that you're needing to remedy. We have people who park on grass. We don't want that. And so we're going down, we're having to do some landscaping, some grading, and we're putting millings down so that people can park on a uh, on a packed surface instead of parking in dirt where it may be sinking into the ground. We want to create a uh, we want to create a better product for those people. And we have to do it strategically. We're not there to to overspend. We want to maximize the return on the dollars that we're spending at these facilities when we do this. Okay, great. So then you're you're doing these improvements and and please let me know if I'm missing something. You're doing these capital expenditures and that allows you to increase the occupancy, I would assume. Correct. And then number two, possibly maybe increase the rents for the facilities. That is that is the goal. Yes. Am I missing anything else? You're not missing anything. The value okay. of these facilities is created. Unlike a, unlike a single family, you can have two houses right next to each other. And if they're, they're apples to apples, they're, they're exact equal. And one is renting for $800 and the other one is renting for $1,100, but they're the exact same house. When you go to sell that 
$800 house, let's say for easy numbers sake, somebody goes, I'll give you a hundred thousand for it. And people go, great. And then the one next door, those people go, fantastic. That one sold for 800 or uh, eight, sold for a hundred thousand. I'm going to sell mine for 150 because I'm getting more rent out of mine. And the appraisers go, nope, that's not how that works. You can't do that in single family. Everything in commercial is contingent upon the uh, the NOI or the net operating income that you're getting. And so the goal for these facilities is to drive the revenue higher and higher because the higher you can drive that revenue by increasing rents and decreasing expenses, you are increasing the value of that. Uh, you're increasing the value of that facility by doing that. It, it's not so much, there is some value to, is this an older building or a newer building? But in reality, that's usually going to be reflected in the rents that you're getting. And the more you can drive those rents, and the higher you can get that return, the better you're going to end up with it with a higher price. And those prices are usually based on a, uh, on a uh, cap rate. Yeah, right. And then there's no appraiser that comes in, like in the single family house uh, scenario that you just gave that says, nope, this is what this is worth. It's because you did what you did. You controlled, you drove the revenue up and decreased the expenses. And that what, that's what the bank looks at as exactly. well. They, they treat it as a business. Yeah, they're treating it as a business. The houses, you know, they're just going to say that house next door is over 100. Yours is the exact same. It's worth a hundred. It doesn't matter what it rents for, but that's just not the way that it works in uh, in commercial real estate. Awesome. What does your what does your typical investor look like? Like maybe I'm asking the question the right way, but I think you know where I'm getting at here. Sure. Um, so we have there. There's two types of investors. Mm-hmm. There are accredited investors, and then there's everybody else who is not accredited. And there are some very specific rules that um, people who take other people's money, they have to follow those rules that the Security and Exchange Commission sets up. Um, An accredited investor is someone, once you're an accredited investor, let me take a step back. The doors of investing in alternative assets in different ways, it swings wide open. So if you have a million dollars in net worth excluding your primary residence, you are an accredited investor. If you are a, I believe it's a single individual and you make 200,000 top line uh, income a year and with the expectation of that continuing on, you're an accredited investor. If you're married, it's 300,000. Those, there are other ways to be accredited, but those are usually the biggest ones that people qualify for. Once you are there, the world of investing is open to you. Um, Syndications, everything you see advertised out there online, if you're looking at that and they're advertising that, you'll scroll down to the bottom and it will say for accredited investors only. Because the moment that you advertise a syndication, you can only take accredited investors. You are not allowed to take non-accredited investors. Everybody else who falls outside of those cat that category or the categories of uh, accredited of, of accredited investors is non-accredited. It's not that they can't invest in syndications. It's just that the syndications cannot be advertised. So I have to have a personal relationship with that individual because if I get on Facebook and I say, I am going to do a syndication on 123 Main Street, who's interested, my friend over here who is not accredited can now no longer, they cannot invest in that property. 
It's not allowed. I can only take accredited investors. So when we're looking at this, we're keeping it, we keep our options open. So um, we're not advertising the deals that we've got out there. We always recommend that people um, sign up on our website because I have some very good friends who are not accredited and they want to invest with us. But the moment I push it out on Facebook or do get, let's say I got on a podcast and was very specific about what it is that we are buying and investing in, I can't take their money. Well, I don't like that. I want to give them the opportunity to get a good return as well. So we're when you're looking to invest, you need to realize what type of investor you are and then what you can invest in uh, at that time. Great explanation. And I appreciate you sharing the rules because there are rules behind this and, and you got to be careful. So you obviously are an expert there and pay very close attention to that. So as a as someone who is a, uh, if you're a non-accredited investor, but you want to invest, because there's a lot of people out there that have money, whether it's in a, you know, a self-directed IRA or, you know, whatever it is, you can probably elaborate onto some, some more options for people to consider. They would go to your website or to have a personal relationship with you, or would you, or is there a referral network? I mean, how do you, how do you, where, where would you direct people to go? Yeah, if they were interested in seeing what we had, uh, they would they would start off at our website at gobeyondstorage.com. Mm-hmm. Um, because then once what happens is they put their information in the system, we have a call with them, we get to mm-hmm. know them, talk to them, and we build that relationship. And then if there was something that they were interested in investing in, we're pushing it out through our system not online. We found that a lot of people who were interested in investing in with us were waiting for us to blast it out on Facebook and go, hey, the door is open, come on in. But they don't realize there are these rules that we have to follow. And so I'm quietly always telling people, hey, it's better for you to sign up so that I can go over here and we can put this over here and I'm not blasting it out to the world. And it allows those individuals to invest uh, invest in a, in a deal that they can get a return on. Yeah. And I don't know how crazy I would be, Jay, about investing in something that was blasted out on Facebook. I mean, that's just me. I'm a little bit old school. So I like the personal touch and, and um, you know, speaking to the, the operator um, sure. and, and having that relationship. Because again, these aren't insignificant amounts of money that we're, in, that we're investing here, right? Absolutely. Um, because in reality, you're, you're not investing in the deal. Those people who have that money, they're not, they're not looking at that deal with a perfect stranger going, oh man, I trust that guy implicitly. I'm going to give him my $25,000. I'm going to give him, you know, some of these deals they're asking for $100,000. And you're like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to give that guy that money. He just, he's got a great deal. You are investing in the individual. You are investing in me. You're investing in all these other people that you get to know and that you trust and have built a relationship with. Because yeah, it, it's not like you're you're spending a lot of money, and that you you should have full faith and confidence of the of the individual who is who is running that deal. Brilliant. I couldn't possibly agree more. And you know, I'm invested in some syndications uh, with multifamily, and I can tell you that I could give a hoot about what happens on a day-to-day basis with the properties. You know, I, I, I trusted the guys I invested with because I knew Absolutely. that they were going to, I knew that they were going to execute and the checks come, the checks yeah. come, right. I know that's going to happen, but I don't, you know, as a, as an investor wanting to get into that passively, like I don't have time to, 
do what you do. Exactly. Which exactly. is operate, which is operate and do all these things that you're talking about. So it's a great way to get into real estate, but not having to get your hands dirty. Yeah, it's you, you really have to know and trust the character of the individual who is doing the syndication. That is of the utmost importance. Um, and it, you know, not not just basing your decision on the promises of this person who you don't know. They can promise you an amazing return because they do. They put it in the offering memorandum. Oh, this is what we are expecting to get. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be rich. This is going to be amazing. But there's no guarantee in that. Like in any investment, there's no guarantee. So really what you're doing is you're putting your faith into the individual who you know, who has experience and can show over time that they're they're able to bring those returns and, and know how to operate that asset effectively. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I love it. So let's, I want to ask you about your thoughts. You know, there's a lot of, I try my best not to watch the news. Um, I just don't want the, you know, the, the, the nonsense circling around. I hadn't had my wife turn off after about 15 minutes last night, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world, right? Um, talk about if you could, what your thoughts are on, on this asset class on self-storage. I mean, what do you, what do you see coming up in the future? Do you see any, um, do, do you see it improving? Do you, I mean, do you see it's kind of staying the same? I mean, give your, give your insight there. Okay. So I, I like self-storage for all the reasons that we've already mentioned, mm-hmm. but the, the history behind storage is that banks did not like it. It was an uncertain asset class to them. They did not want to touch it. And if they did want to touch it, it was under terms that most people did not like. And then 2008 hits. And the 2008, 9, 10, 11, they begin to look at storage and they begin to identify its stability in terms of un- in times of uncertainty and their attitude changed completely. And so when you saw multifamily or single family fall off a cliff, or if you have office buildings or retail, such as what's occurred in the last two years, fall off a cliff throughout those time periods of uncertainty, storage does not alter. It does not change. It thrives on <laughs> it thrives on the big three. And I had to write them down, the big three Ds, which is death, divorce, downsize. Anytime there is movement in an economy of an individual needing to go, well, I'm moving from here to here, or my office isn't here anymore, but I need to put it over here, but I need to store my desk somewhere, or there's there's the churn of life. Anytime there is the churn of life, you are going to utilize storage. And so its stability over time has been proven. Uh, it has a very... It has a very low downside as long as you purchase it correctly, and and its upside is driven by uh, the operator's ability. And so when I see chaos and when I see uncertainty in our cities or in our states or in our countries, that only tells me that you know storage still has its place here, and then it's not going anywhere. Um, it's uh, it, it's very versatile. It's it's recession resistant, and and will continue to do well. Um, you know the storage's worst enemy is itself. 
in the fear that people can overbuild in a certain area. And so you always have to be careful with that because you can go into a small town and you can have three facilities that are 100% occupied. And uh, people go, great, I'm going to go build three more facilities where at some point you're going to saturate that market. And you're going to overbuild for what that market demands. So you just have to be careful in in moving forward with that. And in reality, we've seen a lot of change change in that because the cost of building storage or the cost of steel, it it doubled. When lumber doubled, steel also went up. Uh, And so it slowed a lot of people's desire to just go out and build, build, build. They They had to slow that expectation down because steel really got expensive. That's since pulled back. But at the same time, anybody who's building storage at a professional level, whether it's the big class A's or it's us adding a building in a tertiary market, we're measuring carefully. We want to know if I build this 10,000 square foot building, am I going to be able to get this thing and maintain it at 90% occupancy and at a rate that makes the return worthwhile? So we're constantly balancing that uh, that opportunity against the risk. Uh, I'm not as concerned about, you know, the uncertainty in in the world causing problems with storage because storage just has a tendency to thrive off that. It, it's the uncertainty of, hey, is this market going to be able to bear what is actually being built? Or are we overbuilding? And so we're always keeping an eye on that because that's that's how we protect our downside. We want to make sure that this building is going to produce the way we want it to produce and then move forward with that step by step by step. Um, I hope that answers your answers your question. It completely does. And 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 again, I had I wrote down your three D's death, divorce, downsize. And you know, I I fell into the downsize, even though we were upsizing, same thing, right? <laughs> and there's a there's a need for it. And I and I just I never I just thought I just saw it as a necessary evil. Like, hey, I gotta, I gotta and it wasn't a terrible amount of money that I had to spend. It was just, you know, I it had to be done. Like there was no other option for me. Like I had all this stuff and it had to go somewhere. So I love that you described it that way because I I don't I agree with you. I don't I don't I've learned a lot here in the last 40 minutes. I don't see it going anywhere either. You know, because people are unfortunately passing away. It's part of life and then, you know, the divorce rate is very high and and people have to move. Grandma's dresser has to go somewhere. And usually they're saying, "Well, it's not I don't have any room in my house." And if you live, let's say you live in Arizona, you're like, well, I'm not shoving it up in my attic. <laughs> and you're like, well, we don't have basements. You know, a, a large majority of the country doesn't have basements. You know, once you really get south, Tennessee, south, you're not finding houses with basements. I found out Oklahoma doesn't have a lot of basements. Texas, basements don't, they're not there. The soil or the geology doesn't support it. And so they end up saying, well, I'm not sticking it in the attic. So I guess I'm putting it in a storage facility. And so they they put it there and it sits for months and months and months and months. And that's that's what we look for. Yeah. Jay, this has been great. A really great insight. You've taught me a lot. So I know I know the uh, listeners are really uh, going to get a lot of value out of this. Um, this is something for everyone to consider who's looking to invest. I mean, I, I, I might not, I might be using the wrong word here, but it sounds pretty darn safe to me uh, in terms of a, of a place to put your money and knowing that you're going to get uh, a great return. Um, would you 
I think you would agree with that. Maybe maybe you'd add a different word other than safe. Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, if, if if when you see when you see that the the stock market is doing what it's doing, and then the Fed is changing the the, the money supply the way that they're changing, it, and you have multifamily exploding, and on the flip side of that, you have restrictions on evictions that are coming from major cities. You have single family, which has done extraordinarily well over the last 10 years. It, it, there are lots of options out there. I just prefer as an investor, the ease and the stability of the asset class and the operational side that makes it easier. While it might take in my area two months to evict somebody, it can take another area a year or more to do that. We don't live by evictions. We live by lien laws. And you can have somebody who hasn't paid in and out of that unit in 30 to 45 days cleaned out in 10 minutes. And now it's available again for rent. It can be rented a minute later. And there's just, there's a lot of value to that. Right. Yeah. Like you said, you didn't have to deal with the, with the eviction. So great. One more time, Jay, how can we get in touch with you? Uh, what's the best way? Absolutely. You can find us online at uh, gobeyondstorage.com. I'm on uh, Twitter at Jay Bowman, and uh, I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Excellent. And before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to, any final thoughts, anything that I that I forgot to ask you that you wanted to share? No, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a, it's been a great conversation. Yeah, it has. I learned a lot. Thanks again. And uh, appreciate you coming on. Look forward to continuing to, to, to chat with you. Everyone. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of A Better Way with Real Estate Podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you left us a rating and review so we can continue to help you and others navigate the many hurdles of the home buying and selling process. Visit bkwpropertysolutions.com to learn more. And remember, there is a better way with real estate.